Today's scripture reading is from Genesis 8, 20 to 9, 17. So we're crossing over the chapter boundary. Um, again, that scripture reading is Genesis 8, 20 uh, to 9, 17. Uh, you can follow along on the screen uh, or in your own Bibles. Genesis 8, 20, 9 to, to 9 to 17. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offering, offerings to the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be for food for you, and as I give you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh uh, with its life, that is, its blood. For if your lifeblood, I will, uh, and for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I, sh I will require it, and from man, uh, require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is a sign of the covenant that I make between you uh, between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in, uh, in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I, sh when I bring clouds over the earth and the, bow is, uh, the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on earth. God said to Noah, this is a sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. May God bless the reading of his word.
All right. Um, hello again, Cornerstone. Uh, I am Paul. I'm one of the pastors of our church. And um, welcome to anyone who may be visiting or who hasn't come in a while. And I know we have a new school year, so there might be some visitors joining us in person or online as well. Welcome to everyone who has joined us here today. It is our pleasure and honor to worship together and to give glory to God. And at this time, we'll be uh, sharing a message from his word. So we're continuing through uh, the book of Genesis. We're, we started a series a few weeks back through the book of Genesis. And the series is called Beginnings. And it, you know, the word Genesis actually simply means beginnings or origins. Um, it, and we see the story of God's people uh, in the very beginning when God created uh, the heavens and the earth. And so today's story uh, is the story of Noah and it is a, an iconic story that many of us who may have grown up going to church or who have attended church for a while may have heard this, or especially when we were, when we were children, we may have heard this story many, many times. Now, coincidentally or by God's providence, we also had a flood this past week here in our area, and uh, unfortunately, uh, like I prayed, uh, many people died from it, um, from this powerful storm that came down and uh, killed, from what I last heard, around 50 people in the Northeast and around, uh, actually 25 of them from here in New Jersey. And uh, I live in Hillsborough, and I know at least two or three of those deaths were in my town uh, in Hillsborough. And uh, our, our town, it was hard to get out after um, the flood for a few days, and we heard of many people who uh, their, their, um, their belongings were all destroyed and their houses were completely flooded. And so... You know, we, we again pray for these families who are dealing with grief and sorrow, but also trying to recover as well. And I know most of us in our church community were spared uh, by the grace of God, and hopefully none of you were, especially out there in the middle of the storm. I think that's where most people uh, tragically died. But if you watch any of the footage or the video that happened uh, in the storm, you can see how potent, unrelenting, violent and dangerous it was uh, when you see it. Uh, it's why many times when we talk about life, we talk about the storms of life. Right? We compare the, the difficult times, the sufferings, the, um, the pain that we go through as a storm of life. And it's because we see the violence, the, the pain that can come with these storms. So again, if you grew up in the church, uh, Noah and the Flood is one of the more popular stories that you will uh, learn growing up. Uh, it's probably one of the few Bible characters you will remember uh, because you will hear it many, many times. Um, but by no means is it just a children's story. Uh, if you really think about it and understand what's going on, it is terrifying what is happening. It is a terrifying display of God's wrath and judgment upon his people. And when we think about God, I think uh, people tend to have two extremes about who God is. We think of him either as a God of love, a God who loves all people, who wants, to, uh, wants all people to be saved and receive his love and grace by the redeeming work of Christ. And there are others who think God is a God of horror and wrath. And all he wants to do is smite you and punish you for, for doing all the wrong things that you're doing. And he wants to bring pain upon you. So as a result, 
that should motivate us to obey him or we will suffer. And the ultimate form of suffering, suffering will happen when we die in the form of being in the fires of hell forever. Now, nothing I just said is necessarily false, right? But when we hold to one extreme or the other, we miss the full picture of who God is and what he is doing. God is indeed a a God of love and of salvation. But that is not all that he is. At the same time, he is indeed a God of judgment and wrath. But that is also not all that he is. We see that very clearly in our text for today. So before we dive into our text, let me just pray for us one more time. Ask the Lord to bless our time together. Heavenly Father, we uh, ask for your grace upon us as we read your word, as we reflect on this story. Lord, uh, may it reveal to us who you are. May it draw us closer to Christ and closer to what he has done for us. And may that make an impact in our hearts and lives, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the entire account of Noah <coughs> excuse me, takes place from Genesis 6, uh, 9 to 9, 17, where we just finished off today. So we read the kind of the latter half of the account of Noah. So the entire story of Noah is actually a, a cool structure where it's in a chiastic structure. It's C-H-I-A-S-T-I-C. So that's how you spell chiasm, or it's a chiasm. So chiasms are usually um, formed, uh, usually in the form of poems, a lot of poetry is in a chiastic structure. A lot of the psalms are in a chiastic structure. And to explain what that is, is let's just say a poem has five lines. Uh, the first line would correspond to the fifth line. The second line would correspond to the fourth line. And the third line would kind of be the climax or the main point of the poem or the story. So it basically has a mirror of effect uh, when, when we see it. And it displays kind of the beauty of these stories and poems reveals kind of the, the themes and the point of what the stories are about. So Noah's story does this. And it's not broken up into lines, per se, like a poem would be. It's broken up into events. And so there are about 33 events in total, actually, that happen. Uh, the climax of which is that God remembers Noah. And it says in chapter 8, verse 1, which eventually leads to the waters subsiding. So uh, numbers are even paralleled in this chiastic structure, and I'll just show a, a kind of a glimpse of that. So if you can take a look, um, Noah and his family wait for seven days for the flood, and they also wait seven days for the waters to subside. The number 40 is also paralleled at the beginning of the flood and also at the end of the flood. And lastly, the waters had prevailed on the earth for 150 days, and afterward, after the 150 days, the waters also receded. So we see kind of just in the numbers itself that, that it's using the story, a chiasm here. Just a, a little glimpse of the 33 events that are happening, all right? So the passage we read for today occurs after the flood has occurred. Uh, the flood occurs because the people of God have been disobedient to him, and they have sinfully rebelled against him. Now, it appears that the sins are, uh, we don't know all the sins or the scope of the sins, but some of the sins that are mentioned are sexual in nature, a sexual perversion, 
and what that is, the nature of that sexual perversion is, again, unknown. And we also have these odd figures like uh, people that are called the sons of God. And we have these uh, figures called the Nephilim here as well. And we're not totally sure uh, who these people are, what these characters are. There's speculation. Uh, some people believe the Nephilim are like this weird breed of angels and humans or something like that. Um, some people believe they're like giants. That's another translation for what a Nephilim could mean. So again, a lot of speculation, but no certainty about who these people are necessarily. But whatever the case is, God's creation was disobedient to God. And ultimately, Noah was the only one who, found, who, was, who was to have found favor before his eyes. So Noah found favor in God's eyes, and ultimately the reason for that is his faith. Uh, Genesis 6-9 says that he walked with God. And so that means that Noah had faith in God. But, but God saw the earth with, it, with its violence and corruption, and ultimately he decided to get rid of all the people and all the creatures of the earth. So he told Noah to make an ark. If you went to Sunday school as a kid, you may have heard this. And he would destroy the earth by a flood that would come down for 40 days and 40 nights. And Noah's given by God uh, these exact instructions on how to build the ark. And we see the, the, the different measurements in the Bible as well. And uh, when we put it all together, it kind of, we kind of, kind of get a guess of how big it was. And, and people guess that it's around three football fields uh, long, essentially, probably around four to five stories high. And so after the, the 40 days of this flood with his family, and we see that uh, two of every animal are, are supposed to join the ark as well, uh, they have to wait for another 150 days for the waters to recede. And again, I apologize if this seems repetitive, but I just want to explain clearly what's happening in this story. And eventually Noah sends out a raven and a dove uh, to see if there is dry land, and Eventually, the dove, the second time uh, he sends out the dove, the dove comes back with an olive leaf, which shows that he knows the flood has finally come to an end. Now, I just quickly went through the story. There's a lot of details I missed in Genesis 6 to 8, and I would encourage you to read that on your own when you get a chance. But um, now we get to the text for today, where God establishes a covenant with Noah after the flood. Um, and I want to examine some of the questions regarding the flood account before we get into our text for today. So there are many questions about this story regarding the historical reliability of the flood story, like could this have really happened? And we know that there are other ancient Near Eastern accounts, basically other um, ancient texts of that region that have a similar story of the flood of Noah as well. And they're very, very similar. And some people like to say that actually that helps to prove that this may have happened. Again, it's not like hard evidence, but it shows like, oh, other people have made a similar account. Something like this must have happened. That's basically the argument. And when we look at the book of Genesis itself, it is written as a historical narrative. And so when we look at the genre of the text and we see how Jesus especially, uh, how he uh, sees the Pentateuch, or the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, those are the Pentateuch, or the Jews call them the Torah, right? These tend to be historical in the eyes of Jesus. That's how he treats these books. 
So I think that we too, uh, if Jesus says that they are historical narrative, we too can consider these historical narratives as well. Even this flood account of Noah, which seems, you know, very strange and unusual and something that probably sh- could never happen, uh, we, see, we can take it as something that actually did happen. So there's actually another debate about whether this was a worldwide global flood or this was just a regional flood. And so some believe that it was, you know, a scale of the whole world. Some people believe it was just that portion of uh, land where they lived. But from the Bible, it's hard to extrapolate exactly, um, you know, which way is true. So we're not sure of that either. So some theologians like to go one way or the other. And others had questions of, you know, how many animals could actually fit into the ark? Like, could you really fit every animal in there? And actually, based on calculations, you could probably fit like tens of thousands of animals into that ark of that size. So again, these are some of the questions that have been raised regarding the flood that I wanted to kind of put out there just to let you know that these have been some of the um, worries or concerns that people might have had. But ultimately for us, uh, this is God's word. We believe the Bible is God's word, and we see how God is working in history. So that finally leads us to where Noah comes off the boat, and God is establishing a covenant with him. So before we get to the covenant, let's think about what a covenant is and the purpose of a covenant. So a covenant is essentially a, contract, a contractual agreement between two parties. And in a human sense, it would be a contract between one human and another human, right? Between two people, essentially. But in a divine sense, it's a little bit different. In the covenants that God makes to his people in the scriptures, he sovereignly establishes his relationship with his creatures, his creation. And so he binds himself with an oath. He makes a promise that he will always keep his promises. He He basically makes an oath that he will always keep his promises. And that's what these covenants do and what they establish. So the purpose of a covenant is for God to establish his promises. And the promises of God's faithfulness to his people. So God is displaying his faithfulness, his promise to never break these promises that he makes to his people. So in this story of the flood, and the covenant that God establishes with Noah, we, we learn a few messages. And we see the sign of the covenant is the bow, the, the rainbow. Um, so the, uh, the rainbow is the sign of that covenant for us. And so we learn a few messages here through this covenant that God establishes. So first, is the story in, first in the story of the flood, we see that God reveals the sinfulness of humanity. Basically, the sinfulness of humanity truly indeed is real. And the reason for the flood was humanity's sin, rebellion, disobedience against God. Uh, After the flood, again, this is um, in chapter 8, verse 21 that we read for today. God says, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. God knows that humanity's moral condition is broken. And not only was it broken before the flood, it is indeed broken after the flood as well. And uh, God is not naive to think that Noah is going to perfectly obey him and that his descendants will not sin. 
In fact, we know that Noah does sin. He sins right after this, actually. In chapter 9, verse 20, right after the passage that we read, he plants a vineyard and he drinks from it and he got drunk and he got naked in the middle of the vineyard. And Noah's sin of drunkenness leads to his sons sinning as well. He's actually considered to be the first drunk person in history. And the reality is that humanity does not get any less sinful. Noah was always sinful. Now, people like to think that Noah was spared because he wasn't sinful. That is not true. Noah was not perfect. He did not uh, obey the commandments perfectly. That's the only way you could be spared because of your own righteousness. It was actually because he trusted in God. He had faith in God. He received the grace of God. So that doesn't mean he was sinless or perfect. Noah simply believed So even though the text says that he was blameless or righteous, again, that does not mean he was sinless. He still was a sinner. And actually, in the Old Testament uh, context, when you say someone is righteous, uh, it's actually considered uh, a person who was a sinner who hated his sin and repented of it and trusted in God. So that's what it truly means to be righteous. Even in the Old Testament context, it means that he was a sinner who hated sin, repented of it, and trusted in God. And in Hebrews 11, we see uh, all the, the figures of the Old Testament that had faith, and Noah is one of them. Right? We said Noah, by his faith, constructed an ark, and it says, became an heir of the righteousness which comes by faith. So again, his righteousness came by faith, not his sinlessness, not that he was perfectly obedient to God. He had faith in the Lord. And if we think about how the Old Testament figures were saved, and Pastor Jeff mentioned this last week, and how Noah is saved, they are saved by looking forward to Christ. And Christ has saved us from future, present, and the past. And so when we think about these Old Testament figures, they indeed are saved, and they are saved by the work of Christ, by looking forward to his work as we look to the past of what he has done for us. So Noah is not exempt from sin. He was not righteous in that sense. So the sinfulness of humanity is indeed real. And I know that as a parent, um, one of the hardest things that, uh, to do will be to explain to your kids you know, why we have to worry about evil people in the world. Right? There are countless books and articles about parents trying to explain the, the evil that happens in our world and why there are bad people. Now, all of these people obviously have good intentions, um, but as Christians, we shouldn't be explaining why there are bad people in the world, but actually acknowledging our own sinfulness is more important and crucial in understanding how we have received the redemption through the work of Christ. So Noah was sinful, and we are sinful, and that's what we actually should be focusing on. That's not, oh, these are these bad people. It's like, no, we have to look at ourselves. We are the bad people, and we have sinned against God, and we need redemption in Christ. And again, thankfully, we don't have to stay in our sin, and there is indeed a remedy to it. There is salvation from it. So again, our sinfulness is real. The second thing that we learn is that the story of the flood reveals the judgment of God is indeed real. God is a patient God. 
He is definitely patient with us, but his patience eventually ends. There is an end to the patience of God. And in this story, God's patience ends and he imposes his judgment on his people. Uh, Genesis 6, 7 says, So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the ground, man and beast and creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. He also says that he will destroy everyone with the earth. And again, we can sense God's anger here in this. And indeed, God is a God of wrath and anger. God gets angry. That is not something that we should shy away from in any way. The, the judgment of God is real because God hates sin. And he hates it not arbitrarily, but because sin is bad. Sin is actually bad. That is why he hates sin. He hates it and punishes those who refuse to repent of their sins. And Jesus himself, he taught the same thing. He taught about hell. He taught that people will be in hell. There is an actual place called hell, and people will suffer for eternity. And there will be yeah, a punishment for sin. When we think about the judgment of God, we have to look at it in its proper context. We, for one, we have to realize that we all deserve God's judgment. We all deserve it. Romans 1 tells us that we knew God. We knew him. Before sin, we knew who he was. We knew exactly who he was. But because of sin, we rejected God. And we lived for our selfish desires. And that is why uh, people don't believe in God, because of our sinful nature. And has prevented us from glorifying God and giving thanks to him as he deserves. Romans 1.21 says... For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So in the very beginning, we knew God. We knew who he was. We had salvation. We had eternal life. But because of the fall, because of the corruptive nature of sin, it infects us, and we fail to see God as a result. And that's the reason why we fail to trust in God. The reason why we're selfish is because of what sin has done to us. So in reality, we deserve this judgment from God. We are the ones who have sinned against him. And because of that, our hearts are darkened, our minds are depraved, and we cannot see him for who he truly is. So not only do we deserve his judgment, it also reveals how awful it is to live in sin. Because living in sin is not awful because we're going to be punished. I think too many times we focus on the punishment of sin, right? The punishment of sin is death, eternal, you know, uh, eternal death in hell, in the fires of hell. Like, of course, none of us want that. But that should not be the reason why we don't want to sin or have sin in our lives. Living in sin is awful in and of itself. It is self-destructive. And I use this analogy sometimes, and it seems to be crude, but it is accurate. Sin is like a drug, a very addictive drug. In the moment, drugs feel good. Whenever you take drugs, it feels good. Even legal drugs, right? They feel good sometimes. And it feels like, how could I have ever lived without this? People who are really addicted to drugs, that's how they feel. How could I have ever lived without this? This is the best thing that I could feel in the world right now. 
And the, so the reason why doing certain drugs is a crime is because as a society, we know that drugs are bad. They are self-destructive. It leads us to be completely dependent on them. We cannot function in society. It ruins our health, our relationships. If everyone in the world was on drugs, our, our world would end, right? We, our, we would not function as a society. We would just destroy ourselves if that was the case, right? We would no longer cease to exist. So the punishment of drugs, you know, whatever that is, going to jail, going to rehab, that's not actually what's awful about drugs. Drugs are bad. Drugs in and of itself are destructive. They are awful. So the punishment of sin is not what is bad about sin. Sin itself is destructive and will lead us to be miserable and blind of what life is truly about. You know, people will see this aspect of, of the Bible and of God about his judgment, and they get turned off by it. Um, skeptics, a lot of skeptics of Christianity will say, I want to believe in a God of love, not a God of punishment, right? And who would want to believe in a God who sends people to hell, right? Who willingly knows that people will go to hell? Why do we, why do we believe in a God like that? The, the problem with a statement like this or a comment like this is that uh, the only place we see that God is love is actually only in the Bible. Only the God of Christianity is ever a God of love. And this is what uh, Tim Keller says about this. He addresses skeptics who make comments like this. So this is what he says. Well, what makes them think God is love? Can they look at life in the world today and say, this proves that the God of the world is a God of love? Can they look at history and say, this all shows that the God of history is a God of love? Can they look at the religious text of the world and conclude that God is a God of love? By no means is that the dominant ruling attribute of God as understood in any of the major faiths. I must conclude that the source of the idea that God is love is the Bible itself. And the Bible tells us, who that, tells us that the God of love is also a God of judgment who would put all things in the world to rights in the end. So the point he's making is that in, in every major religion, in everything that we see in the world, everything that we witness, love is not the main attribute of God. That actually only comes in Christianity, what we believe, where because God is a God of love, there is salvation from judgment that is offered to us. So that leads me to my last point, that God is not simply a God of wrath and judgment. If it stopped there, we would be hopeless. Like, why would we be worshiping a God like that, right? The grace and salvation of God is indeed real. We see God's grace and love uh, and, and his salvation for us when he establishes his covenant with Noah. Uh, can we go to the next slide? First, in Genesis 9.1, uh, we see that God establishes the same mission he gave to Adam in one, chapter 128, which is commonly called the creation mandate. He says, God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And it's repeated again in verse 7 as well. So we see this a command from God to Noah to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God is basically starting over again. He said this to uh, Adam, and now he's saying it to Noah because Everything has been destroyed. Now we're starting anew. 
And now Noah is, so to speak, a new Adam. So again, God is starting over here. And in Genesis 9:11, he says, I establish uh, my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of a flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And in Genesis 8.22, he also says, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. So in other words, we see that God protects humanity from the animals, from one another, and from God's wrath itself. So he sees that he will uphold rather than destroy the world. As long as the world continues to be, God promises to preserve, not to destroy. And he is going to withhold that judgment. But, as mentioned before, sin is still a problem here. We see this covenant God establishes, but what is God going to do about sin? Sin was the reason why the flood happened, and after the flood we still see sin. So what is going to happen with sin? The punishment of sin is death. The, the flood, however, did not eradicate sin. Noah still sinned, and we will see that sin continues to reign in the world. We see it now, how much sin reigns in the world. So we see the sinfulness of humanity and how evil we are. We see the judgment of God on full display, but God does not choose to completely eradicate humanity, and instead he promises to protect them. So what's missing here? How do we deal with this? Well, we have the privilege of knowing the answer to that question. The New Testament writers saw the flood as a foreshadowing of the final judgment. But not just judgment, they also saw it as foreshadowing of ultimate salvation. The story of Noah is incomplete in and of itself because sin needs to be dealt with. And we see a sign of that in Genesis 8.20 where at the end of the flood, before God made the covenant, He says this, uh, Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And And when the Lord smelled the pleasing odor, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. The covenant of God was a response to this offering that Noah made, this burnt offering, a sacrifice. Now, we know that sin has been dealt with a, dealt with by a greater sacrifice. The sacrifice of God himself sending his son, Jesus Christ. God still hates sin and we are still sinful, but God will never curse the ground because of man, because God has provided the remedy. He has provided the ultimate solution. When we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, it is his sacrifice that gives us salvation. God's judgment has been satisfied because his wrath has not been poured out on us. It's been poured out on Christ. He has taken the wrath. He has taken it upon himself. And God has saved his people and his judgment has been satisfied. His wrath has been satisfied. And how much more are we able to see and understand the depth of God's love and grace for us without God's judgment? Without judgment, we wouldn't see the nature of God. We wouldn't see this love and grace for us. So in a way, the judgment of God reveals to us a fuller picture of his grace. We see his grace that much more, his love that much more, because we see that 
There was judgment. There is wrath. But there's something to remedy that. And God shows how much he truly loves us in the midst of all of that. If we didn't need saving, then we wouldn't know how much God loves and wills for his people to be saved. So, brothers and sisters, uh, have you experienced this amazing love and grace in your life? After understanding the depth of his love and grace, how could we not want to live out this life that Christ has given us for his purposes, to share the love of God to others. Our ultimate hope and prayer is that God's judgment and salvation will lead us to a fuller picture of who God is and what he has done for us. And may that fill our hearts, fill our hearts to love those around us and bring the good news of Jesus Christ so that they too can be saved from sin and judgment. May the Lord speak to us all here today. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we see how your word shows us how you are a God of judgment and salvation. And God, we see the beauty of who you are and the depth of your loving grace by seeing the reality of your judgment and how much you love us, how much you care for us, and how much you want us to receive your grace through Jesus Christ. And so, Heavenly Father, we come to you now asking that you would help us to get a fuller picture of who you are, that you are truly a God of judgment, but also a God of salvation. And so, Lord, by this fuller picture that we have, may we draw closer to you, closer to your word and your truth, that we can live out our lives thanking you, giving glory to you, and declaring the good news of Christ. Because, Lord, we want all to hear this news. Because, Lord, we know that all of humanity is sinful and in need of salvation. So, Lord, help us, lead us, guide us to know who you are, to trust in you, to trust in Christ, our Redeemer, redeeming us from our sin and death. Lord, may we live out this life living for your purposes, for your glory, to love you and to love others by sharing the good news. God, lead us here this morning. May your, your spirit fill our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.